And what I was going to say right is here is, what does it mean for a man to be strong? Does it mean something like that? <laughs> we typically think of something like that when we think of a strong man, somebody like me, yeah. <laughs> but as awesome as that is, it isn't the greatest kind of strength that there is. The greatest kind of strength is spiritual strength. And what I want to try to share with you today is this, men. The key to spiritual strength is fear. Now, for those of you that weren't here last week, we're doing a series uh, over six weeks on Christian manhood. And uh, last week we talked about the, uh, the ambitions of the godly man. What is he pursuing in his life? And this week we want to talk about the strength of the godly men. What man? What does it mean to be strong? as a godly man. And we want to begin in Luke chapter 23, in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, this is Jesus and the two criminals hanging next to him, of course, on the cross. One of the two criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, or they spoke bad about him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other one, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The fear of God is the beginning of strength because the fear of God is what leads to salvation. This dying, convicted criminal got two things right about Christ and about God. And the first one is this. God is the judge you should fear. The one criminal says to the other, don't you even fear God since we're, let me paraphrase it, we're here dying too. He said, don't you even fear God? In other words, all of your life you've lived, you've flouted the law, you've done whatever you did to get you here. We know you didn't fear God. We know you didn't fear man. You just lived any way you wanted. But now, when you're about to die, don't you even fear God now? This dying criminal got it right. God is the judge you should fear. In Luke 12, Jesus said, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who after he has killed the body has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That's why I'm saying to you today that fear is the key to strength as a godly man. We need to fear God because he is the judge we will stand in front of. The other thing that this thief got right is this. Jesus was the promised Christ. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now look what the, what the ungodly, let's call him the other one, the ungodly thief. What did he say? Verse 39, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. 
we read something like that and we think it's just uh, the, the uh, hateful words of a dying man, you need to understand something. Everybody who lived in Israel had a certain knowledge about who the Christ was going to be and what he was going to do. The Christ is the Old Testament word. In, in Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. It literally means the chosen one of God. And the people who lived in Israel knew enough about the Bible, the Old Testament, to know that there is somebody coming who will be a deliverer. That's why he says, if you are the Christ, save us. He knew that this Old Testament prediction was that a man will come and he will deliver the people of Israel. And so he's saying, hey, if you're the guy, then show it by saving us right now. Clearly, these men had some awareness of who the Christ was going to be. And so this repentant thief looks at, at, at the one and he says, look, we're going to come under the judgment of God. And he looks at Christ and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Friends, that's the same thing as saying, I believe you are the Christ. Now, did he understand all the ins and outs of, of both the, the doctrine of Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament? No, he did not. But clearly, he had to be expecting that death was not going to be the end for the Christ. And in that sense, he had more sense than the Pharisees who put him to death. Through a proper fear of God, this wicked criminal was strong enough to humble himself and believe in Christ. You see, the fear of God requires the strength of humility. I have to look at myself and say, no matter what I want to be or what I want to do, I have to stop that. I have to humble myself and realize that only Jesus can take away my sin. I can't do it myself. And, and if I don't have my sin removed, I will pay the penalty when I stand before God the judge. Now, the strength that results from salvation is the confidence of eternity. And this is the key strength of life. Um, we have prayed and spoken about the homegoing of Kara Telgenhoff this week. Uh, her parents, uh, the Cantrells, are here with us. Kara was, for those of you that don't know, Kara was 35 years old and fought a two-year battle with cancer. And uh, this week, uh, the Lord uh, completed that and brought her home. And we rejoice with her because we have an absolute confidence that she is in heaven. And for those of us who are in the Lord, we have an absolute confidence that we will be with her someday. That is the beginning of strength. If you don't have that strength, you're going to be weak, period. You're going to live your life running away from all kinds of things and running toward all kinds of things. If you have the strength of knowing, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. He's prepared a place for me in heaven. And He's going to receive me to Himself. Wow. I remember one time I was going to a funeral when I was in Tukwila, I did many, many funerals for people who did not know the Lord, who I met 
through my involvement with the police department. And I'm, I'm walking through the graveyard to the service I'm going to do over there. And right over here, there was a group, group of folks who I took to be Russian immigrants by the way they were dressed and by the fact that I did not understand their language and it sounded like a Russian kind of language. And they were standing around that grave sick, singing to the Lord. And I had to go over here and try to speak God's word to some folks who didn't know the Lord. I wanted to be over there. I have a friend, uh, Mark Succo, who is a pastor, whose son-in-law uh, was in the army and went to Iraq back in the, uh, in the days of the heat of the battle over there. And he told his men... I don't remember, Doug, where are you at, Doug? Doug, was he an officer or a sergeant? I think he was a sergeant. So he was in charge of a squad of people. And he told them, they knew he was a Christian, and he said, if somebody has to die on our patrols, I hope it's me, so that you will have a chance to believe in Christ. And that's what happened. You want to be a strong man? Then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let him give you the strength that only he can to face life's final and ultimate test. Knowing Christ as Savior gives us confidence, not because of us, not even because we made a decision. It gives us confidence because the Holy Spirit comes in and new life comes in. And Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. I can't do that on my own and you can't on your own. Do you have the strength of salvation today, men and everyone else? Can you face death with confidence? That is the beginning of strength. That's what a strong man looks like. The second, the second thing that the fear of God enables is spiritual victory. Spiritual victory. Um... Turn with me back to Genesis 39, please. All the way back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis 39. We're going to start in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. He'd been thrown into slavery, sold into slavery by his own brothers because they hated him. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. He, Joseph was so blessed of God that an unbelieving Egyptian could tell God was blessing him. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house. And all that he had he put under Joseph's authority. 
So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Look! My master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now, we can certainly understand the wisdom of not messing around with the boss's wife. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's probably going to bite you. Okay? But, let's put this in context, folks. How do you have victory over temptation when the world around you is pushing you to act on your desires. This woman was day by day saying, come on, let's go to bed, let's have sex, come on. He's not here, he won't see. It's just between us, nobody will be hurt. All of those things that everybody keeps saying. How does he say no, 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 no? How does he do it? He does it because of that little phrase in there, verse 9. How can I sin against God? Now later in Joseph's life, we read this phrase. Joseph said to his brothers, I fear God. How do you have victory when the world is pushing you, when your own desires is pushing you, Toward sin. How does the fear of God enable spiritual victory? Well, first of all, it enables spiritual victory because there is an eternal motivation to live righteously. There is an eternal motivation to live righteously. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must all appear in front of Christ, front and center, face to face, while he sifts through the stuff of our life. Now, you know, we could imagine that it's sifted through by the, the holiness of fire of, of, of his righteousness. I, I don't believe he's going to drag up every single event. There's certainly not going to be punishment, but there will be some awareness of the things that were eternal and the things that were sinful in the sense of here's all that's left. It's hard to change your behavior based on the future. I have no doubt about that. 
But somehow, some way, we've got to put this verse into our memory so that when we come to a point of temptation, we, like Joseph, say, how can I sin against God? Joseph didn't say, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to mess around with the boss's wife. He said, how can I do this against God? Now, it would seem that part of Joseph's thinking was, look at how much God has blessed me. How could I turn my back and essentially say, well, that's nothing, and I'm going to pursue my pleasure. The fear of God is the beginning of spiritual victory to get that thought in our head. God is keeping a record of our actions. He will reward us for the good. And he will consume the bad. My first ministry assignment was teaching 12 juvenile delinquents. I mean junior high boys. (laughs) Pastor's son, deacon's sons, you know how it goes. And as I got to know their world... I learned something. And what I learned was the place of wickedness was behind the grandstand. Up at Nooksack High School, there's a big grandstand, and it's kind of a back 40 on the other side. And that's where they would go to do whatever they were going to do that they weren't supposed to be doing at school during school hours. And so I was teaching along this line, trying to motivate those 12 juvenile delinquents to live righteously, And I read from Psalm 139, God knows where you are here, and he sees you there, and God knows us everywhere. And and I was trying to wax eloquent, saying, uh, God sees you at home, he sees you at church, and he even sees you behind the grandstand. (laughs) Where's your grandstand? God is there. God is there, and you will give an account. If you live in a worshipful fear of God, you will say no to sin, because someday He is going to reward your righteousness. So there, there is an eternal motivation for sin, but there's also a present motivation, excuse me, a motivation for righteousness. There's also a present motivation to live righteously in the fear of God. And essentially that present motivation is this, God cares about our righteousness so much that he is working to keep us that way, whatever it takes. And the danger that is there is verbalized by the Apostle Paul. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In this passage, he's using the mental imagery, the picture of a track race. And, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're running on the track and... And in that day, when the race was over, they would go and stand before the judge, and the judge would reward the one who won. But he said, when you're running, you have to be careful that you don't get disqualified. Now, if you know anything about the Olympics that are coming up, if you're in a a sprint race, 
you can't step into the other lane. And you certainly can't cut across the field. <laughs> you know, there's rules. And if you don't follow the rules, the judge says, you don't even get to be considered for a medal. You get to be set aside. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't say, I'm, 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 I'm worried that I'm going to lose my salvation and go to hell. He didn't say that. What he was verbalizing was a truth that's borne out throughout the rest of the New Testament, which is this. God disciplines his children who are walking in sin. Hebrews 12 is the premier passage on that, but also 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 and James 5 and 1 John 5 all speak about the judgments of sickness and even death on disobedient believers. God takes your righteousness so seriously that he will do what it takes to get you to live righteously. We call that the discipline of God. God doesn't take delight in bringing hardship into our life, but if we're not walking with him, that's what he does. Um, I did not enjoy spanking my children. They probably wondered sometimes. <laughs> That one, all we had to do was look at. <laughs> but you know what? I did it. Because I wanted them to be joyful, happy, productive people in the world. And without discipline, it cannot happen. And without discipline, a child cannot grow up to say, there is a God and I must fear him. That's right, because when I disobey, it brings me pain. And so I spanked my children to get them to behave rightly. And that's what God does to us. You might not fear God for that judgment someday, but you need to fear God now. When you're walking down the path of your life and you're tempted to sin, you should say, I don't want to come under the judgment of God. Now, I know some people take that a little too far, and they're, somehow they're constantly living in fear. The Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. And I'll tell you what that means. What that means is if you love God so much that you would never sin against Him, then fear doesn't need to play a part. Love is kind of the flip side of, of that fear of God. But it starts with fear of saying, God is the judge. God is my heavenly Father. He is going to make me walk righteously. And if I take him seriously, I will say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That's the second part of strength of a godly man. A godly man fears God enough to say no to sin. The third element of fear that makes us godly is this. The fear of God demands spiritual perseverance. Spiritual perseverance. Difficulty in the Christian life comes from a variety of scenarios, including ones like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he shunned evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge or a protective fence around him, around his household, around all that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. 
only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he destroyed everything in Job's life except his wife and his body, including his children. And we have to grapple with the fact that God allowed that. Clearly, Satan knew that he could not do anything that God did not allow. He said, you put a fence around him. You're protecting him and blessing him. He didn't say it, but he could have said this, I just can't get to him. I keep trying, but you won't let me. Remember that when it comes to difficulty in your life. There is no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear. But God will allow us to suffer. In this case, the suffering was allowed by God because God wants to prove to Satan that our relationship to, to God is real and enduring. Now, you and I look at that and say, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't like that that much. I don't like it that much either. But God is God. There are times when God himself will present challenging circumstances like he did with Abraham. The scripture specifically says God tested Abraham in regard to Isaac. God made that a test. God tells us in numerous New Testament scriptures that he uses difficulty to mature us in the Christian life. And so if we fear God... We must cling to him in faith no matter what comes. There is no plan B in the Christian life. Now, I know people talk about the permissive will of God. All that means is that God's not going to strike you dead the first time you sin. Uh, God knows what's going to happen, but it doesn't mean God says, oh, you don't like this way, you can go that way, that's fine. No, no. When we come into trials and difficulty, we need to look up to heaven and say, Oh, God, help. But we've got to hang on to him while we pray for help, while we pray for wisdom, while he does whatever it is he wants to do. Perseverance comes from fearing God. God's in control. I don't understand it. I may not like it, but God is in control. He is God, and I fear Him, so I'm sticking with Him through this difficulty. There was a man mentioned in the New Testament named Demas. Demas was called a fellow worker by the Apostle Paul. And, and, and those people were the ones who actually did the ministry with Paul. So this, this guy had to be a, a, you know, a real good servant of the Lord. But look what happened sometime later. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know, this is tantamount to saying Demas looked down through time and he saw the judgment of God, and he saw this present of world, and he said, I'm picking this, because whatever is going on here, I don't want it. I can imagine, <laughs> I can imagine that traveling with Paul was quite an adventure. I mean... You know, we, we have an image of Paul going from place to place by himself, and that just wasn't what happened. 
He had groups of people, and there was, you know, you read the end of all the epistles, you see all these men mentioned, and, and even a few women mentioned who served, and, and, and he was going from place to place, and, and here's a group of guys going with him here, and here's a group of guys going there, and, and he was doing that for help in the ministry, but also for discipling. And so if you were one of those guys, when he got stoned and kicked out of town, you'd think real hard about what tomorrow was going to be in your life. And that stuff happened over and over and over. And then you, maybe you weren't with Paul on the ship when he was shipwrecked, but later on you hear, he's telling the story, yeah, I told those guys, I said, don't do this, but they did it anyway, and this happened, and we're shipwrecked, and then I got bit by a snake, I shook it off, and then they tried to worship us, and on and on, they're going, mm, I love this present world. And that's what happened to Demas. No spiritual perseverance. Let me put that another way. He wasn't strong. It's not hard to cave in to the stuff of the world. It's hard to be strong in the face of difficulty. Jesus put it this way. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. God says, look, you're going to go forward, you're going to go backward. When you come to difficulty, trial, hardship, challenge, call it what you may, you can continue to move forward if you genuinely respect God as the creator, the sustainer, the owner, and the wise father of all who believe in him. But if your commitment to trusting God is not strong, you will waver in that moment and you will cave like Demas. The fear of God demands spiritual perseverance. Number four, the fear of God emboldens spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership. I want to look at a negative example of spiritual leadership first. And that comes from Exodus. And Moses said to Aaron, now let me set the stage for you here. Uh, children of Israel came to a certain place and God said, Moses, you come up here on this uh, mountain. It's called a mountain and in our way of thinking it would be a high hill. It's not like going up to Mount Baker or whatever, you know. But, but it was a, a hill that he would climb up and get up on top and he said, you come up here and I'm going to give you the law. And so he went up and the children of Israel were not allowed to come anywhere even close to this. So they're down in the valley below and Aaron was the number two guy and he's in charge. And so Moses comes back down after receiving the law, and he says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. <laughs> Chill. That's what he said. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. You get that, right? It just appeared. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained... For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. And then the story goes on. There's great judgment and whatnot. 
I want you to think about what Aaron said here. Let back this story up just a little bit. Whoops. There we go. The people came and said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Now, what's the next thing in the story? So I said, whoever's got gold, break it off and bring it to me. Wasn't there a point, Aaron, at which you stopped to say, this isn't right? And then as the story goes, we find specifically that Aaron did not restrain them. What did Aaron care about? What did he care about? What? His own image? The, the anger of the people? Maybe he feared that they would uh, attack him? What's that? Yeah. Did he fear God? He feared man. You're going to be a spiritual leader? There's going to be times... <laughs> when you have to look the crowd in the eye and say, we're not going there. There's going to be times when you have to look your children in the eye and say, you're not going there. There's going to be times when you have to look at yourself and say, we're not going there. And the only way that's going to happen consistently is if you think, I have to answer to God. <laughs> I knew a law enforcement uh, officer once who I was talking to about being sued all the time. And he said, I'm not worried about the attorneys. I have to answer to a higher power. And he meant God. And I thought, wow. You mean you're trying to choose what is right and wrong based on what God says? What a revolutionary concept. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 few books down the road there. Let's find Nehemiah. <sighs> Nehemiah. It's after the Kings and the Chronicles and so on. Nehemiah 6. Let's look at a positive example. Now it happened, Nehemiah 6.1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab... Just put in your mind here, those are the bad guys in the story. It happened when them and the rest of our enemies heard that I, Nehemiah, not just him by himself, but him and the people of Israel, had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks. They'd gotten the wall finished, although at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. That Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In other words, it was open for everybody to see. And this is what was written in it. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. 
Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, to the king of, of Assyria. So come, therefore, let us consult together. And then I said to him, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid. Underline that if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible. They were trying to make them afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not get done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah saw this as a spiritual battle, which it was. He says, those people are trying to scare me into inactivity, but I'm not going to let it happen. God, you strengthen my hands. And they kept going, and they got the job done. If, <clears throat> humanly speaking, Nehemiah was not operating out of a place of strength. Nehemiah was not a professional builder. He was not even a professional manager but he was devoted to an all-powerful God, and that motivated him to keep going. If your leadership is sourced in your own wisdom and your own ability, you will fail as a leader. But if you've taken your orders from God, you can stand in his boldness. The fifth thing that I want to share with you today, the last is this. The fear of God empowers spiritual ministry. The fear of God empowers spiritual ministry. Very near the end of his life, Paul wrote this charge to, to, to Pastor Timothy. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when people will push back against God's truth. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you don't become one of those pastors. You be watchful in all things. You endure afflictions. You do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Finally, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. What I want to emphasize here, we've read this passage in church before, and, and, and I've studied it, but the thing that pops at me this week is the emphasis on judgment. The Apostle Paul was being faithful because he said, there is a righteous judge who will evaluate my life. And because Paul feared God, he sought to be obedient to the word, even though people will push back against it. In the day of Paul, they were pushing back. And today, they're still pushing back. It's just a new thing every, every week. Now, what I want you to notice about Paul's motivation to Timothy, though, is this. Paul didn't say, now, Timothy, don't let me down. He didn't say, now, Timothy, I've invested my life in you. 
And you got to keep going because otherwise my memory will be besmirched. No. He didn't say there's lots of people counting on you. He didn't say you're my only hope to keep the Christian thing going. He said you're going to answer to God someday, young man. And so you do it the way he wants it done. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now both of these passages are are directly for pastors. I understand that. But I also understand that if we were to look at the whole of the New Testament, the concept of answering to God for the way that we conduct the ministry he's given us to do is for all of us, not just pastors or elders, not just for men, but for all of us. There will always be a pushback against genuine ministry. There will always be people who want you to leave certain parts of the Bible unpreached. There will always be children who don't want you to teach them to live righteously. There will always be challenges to your efforts to carry out the work of God the way God wants it done. And so at some point, you have to decide who you will fear. Who am I going to live in fear of, God or man? God gave the same challenge to his chosen people at a point at which they were languishing because of their sin. Listen to this. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you out of the hand of those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you. I gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God made it very clear. You've got to choose. Are you going to fear those gods or are you going to fear this God? We all live in fear of something or someone. The question is not if, but who. If we will live in the fear of God, this can be our testimony. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I will not fear what man can do to me. I had a friend years ago who uh, lived in eastern Washington, went to a sister church of ours, in which the pastor wasn't a, a huge supporter of carrying guns. And my friend referred to his pastor talking about how he didn't think people needed to carry guns. Apparently he must have spoken about that from the platform. And my friend says, the funny thing about that is, at the very moment he's talking about that, there's probably a dozen guys on the platform with guns in the choir. (laughs) We might need that kind of strength someday in the church. But the kind of strength we need every day is the kind of strength that comes from men who so fear God that they have believed in Christ, are living obediently, are persevering in trials, and are leading and serving with boldness because they fear God. Heavenly Father, help us. We are so susceptible to wanting the approval of people, of fearing their displeasure, 
We feel the pressures of the world pushing us to be this way or be that way. Help us. Help us to get ourselves lined up squarely with you and to to always live in your fear like these great men that we read about in the Scripture. Help us as we go forth from here when we are tempted to cave in for something. Help us to remember that we live in your fear. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.